You're now listening to episode 96 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate accounting and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is a replay of a webinar we did just last week with Jay Scott, real estate investor, entrepreneur, and author, as well as Matt Rappaport, who specializes in tax planning, structuring, and compliance, and works closely with real estate investors in his role as vice managing partner of Falcon, Rappaport, and Berkman PLLC. During the webinar, we discussed new tax planning opportunities that resulted from the CARES Act, the EDIL and PPP programs, legal risks with government funding, where the economy is headed, how real estate investors can prepare for a recession, upcoming business opportunities, and we took questions from the live audience. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback on this webinar and a lot of requests for this replay. So this is why we decided to replay this webinar here on the Real Estate CPA podcast. And it's also available for replay on our YouTube channel. You can find our YouTube channel by following the link in the show notes below or just by heading to YouTube and typing in the Real Estate CPA and you'll be able to find this relatively easily. And without further ado, we're gonna go ahead and jump right into today's episode. There is a disclaimer, this material that we're gonna go over in today's webinar is not to be, uh, is, is for informational purposes only, and is not to be relied upon as tax, legal, accounting, or investment advice. Please seek your individual tax and financial advisors before engaging in any transactions. All right, so that being uh, said- Sorry, I just wanna jump in real quick on the chat box, guys. If you see any links in there that don't come from the panelists, please do not click them. <laughs> Zoom's kind of been in the news recently about the uh, security stuff. So if you see somebody throwing a link in there, just don't click it. Thanks. Yeah. If you see something, say something. Okay. Uh, and uh, what we're going to be talking about today is EDIL versus the PPP loan uh, program, the economy in general, tax opportunities, uh, legal risks, and then where we're headed. Uh, just to lay out some ground rules for the panelists, feel free to jump in at any time. Uh, let us know when you want to speak on a topic. Uh, we do have some uh, questions prepared to kick off the event, but we will be taking questions from, from the audience. And uh, without further ado, I uh, want to uh, have each of the panelists introduce themselves. We'll go ahead and get started with Brandon. Uh, then we'll go with Jay and then Matt Rappaport. Cool. Uh, so I'm Brandon Hall. I am CEO of the Real Estate CPA. We are a virtual CPA firm, 100% remote. Got about 15 employees. I always say about. I have 15 employees. <laughs> and uh, we service real estate investors, syndicates, funds, developers, brokers, all across the United States. We've got about 580 clients. 100% of them are in real estate. And uh, I have spent the last three weeks, three, two and a half, three weeks, doing nothing but reading the CARES Act and, and holding a bunch of webinars and talking about what's in the CARES Act and then trying to figure out what's changing on a daily basis. So that's been my life recently. But uh, Jay, I'll turn it over to you. Sure. So uh, my name is Jay Scott. And that picture there, I need to get you guys a newer picture of me. That picture is really old and I look way too serious. Good, though. I, I don't like that picture. Um, <laughs> anyway, I am Jay Scott. I am, uh, let's see, I'm a real estate investor. I'm a business owner, generally an entrepreneur. Um, 
I am an enthusiast when it comes to the economy and investing topics and business topics. I've written four books on real estate investing, and I am the host of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. For anybody out there that's uh, interested in business entrepreneurship, small business entrepreneurship, check out the, uh, the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. Absolutely. And we have Matt, would you be able to just introduce yourself, give everybody a little, little bit of information on your background? Sure thing. So uh, I'm Matthew Rappaport. I'm vice managing partner and chair of the taxation group at Falcon Rappaport and Berkman PLLC. We are a law firm in New York, although we have attorneys now that are licensed in quite a few states across the country. Even though I head up the taxation group and I deal a lot with taxation real estate, we're a full service firm, including a real estate transactional group. So we cover a lot of different areas, but the main emphasis really is complex transactional law and then um, equally complex litigation, including in the area of real estate. Um, another big emphasis that real estate owners might be interested in is that we have a fairly robust wills trust and estates group, but we have 27 total attorneys. And, um, you know, and real estate is, is probably the largest client base that we have by demographic. Got it, got it. Thank you so much for the introduction. Uh, we're going to go ahead and just start kicking off the questions. I uh, want to kick you off the first question uh, with starting with uh, Brandon. What is, uh, from a high level, what is the difference between the EDIL loan program and the PPP program? Okay. Yeah. So I know that I built this like chart out and everything, but I do just want to stick with a high level because I'm, I'm hoping that for the most part, folks on this call by now know the difference of the EIDL versus the PPP. But the the PPP is the Paycheck Protection Program. The purpose is to protect payroll, to keep people hired so that you don't have employees going on unemployment. The EIDL is the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. Um, and that is for folks that don't have payroll and are experiencing economic injury as a result of COVID. Now, the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, it's made a lot of, uh, of news, mainly because it's completely forgiven. Well, not completely forgiven, but the, 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 the funds spent on qualifying costs will be forgiven at the end of the covered period, which is an eight-week period after the date that you receive the funds. And for self-employed owners, as we found out earlier this week, if you're self-employed, if you are an independent contractor, then you can count your Schedule C income towards the PPP. Um, and eight out of 52 weeks, if you were to divide your Schedule C income, cap it at 100K, divide it by 12, uh, multiply it by two and a half, that's your PPP loan. And then uh, over the next eight weeks, if you basically take eight out of 52, that's your quote unquote owner compensation replacement. And that is what will ultimately be forgiven. But that the Paycheck Protection Program is the one that's gotten all of the news because of that forgivable portion. Uh, it's kind of created the gold rush of of folks wanting to kind of get their get their free money. Um, I did receive I received word yesterday that the PPP actually ran out of funding, and then I guess Chase issued a big statement this morning saying that the PPP ran out of funding too. So. Looks like um, unless there's another, unless through another round of legislation that the PPP is uh, given additional funding, then that was the end of that. I do expect that there will be more funding coming the coming to the PPP. Um, a couple things on the PPP, just so that everybody is aware. Uh, first, we have IRC Section 265, which basically says if you receive tax-free income or or a tax-free grant like the PPP, you cannot deduct the 
the expenses that are associated with that tax-free income. So theoretically, as it stands today, um, the uh, IRC section 265 says that we can't actually deduct the cost of our payroll over the next eight weeks if we picked up the PPP loan. But uh, I do expect the, uh, that in future legislation that will be modified or IRC section 265 will be modified to say, yeah, we're going to allow it for the paycheck protection loan specifically or the, paycheck, the PPP uh, loan specifically. So we expect that to happen. But as it stands today, um, even though the PPP is forgiven on a tax-free basis, um, if you can't deduct the expenses associated with it, it's not really tax-free because you've got more net income that you now have to show. So that's a problem. Um, then we have forgiveness on net payroll versus gross payroll. Uh, so that was a big point of contention over the past few weeks. The SBA did come out and provide guidance that in order to, for, for the purposes of applying for the PPP, you use gross payroll. But now we need the guidance on the forgiveness piece. Do we use net payroll or gross payroll for, to calculate the forgivable amount? Um, and then how to determine forgiveness reduction when business cuts FTEs and wages. There's basically, I think there's five, um, there's five time periods that are all kind of like moving in conjunction here. And uh, as you look at, well, how many FTEs did I have last year versus earlier this year versus now versus by June 30th? And uh, that's a huge confusion point. And quite frankly, I've tried to go through it multiple times and I've just looked at it and said, you know what, until the SBA gives us more guidance, I'm not going to continue trying to figure out what that forgivable amount's going to be. On the other side of the coin, the EIDL, um, that has been really interesting to watch. So the EIDL has been around for a long time. Uh, you could take a loan up to $2 million as it pertains to economic injury related to COVID really good terms, 30 years, 3.75% rate. But earlier this week, we received word that the EIDL loans are now capped at 25K. So that's a 10K grant plus a 15K loan. And that grant portion is now only $1,000 per employee. So everybody that applied for the EIDL in the beginning, uh, unfortunately, I would say you're probably not going to get that grant unless you have employees. And now you're going to be stuck at $1,000 Per employee. But that's my extremely high level overview of the PPP versus the EIDL and uh, hopefully including a, some, some updates there for you as things have been changing very rapidly. We, we did see funding on the EIDL earlier this week, which is good because that was a big question mark. Um, but yeah. So Matt, just want to kind of flip it over to you quickly. Is there anything you want to add on the pay, uh, payroll protection program or the EDIL loan? Uh, not much. I think uh, Brandon covered it pretty well. I would say if you're a landlord, I just put in the chat, uh, and I imagine most people on the the, uh, the seminar here are landlords anyway, I just put in the chat bubble that is a legitimate link from me, um, a link to the Federal Reserve's announcement for the Main Street Lending Program, which I think for landlord relief, if you're not eligible for forbearance, which I know we're going to talk about in the agenda, I think the Main Street Lending Facility, which is the Federal Reserve basically backing a lot of loans and opening up a lot of liquidity for banks to start, for lack of a better term, dropping helicopter money on pretty much everybody who needs it. That's going to be the biggest source of long-term relief for landlords and other folks in the real estate business because the thing about PPP and EIDL is even though we have a couple landlords who have taken their management companies applied for PPP and have taken some of their real estate holding entities and applied for EIDL, 
What we have seen is that these have not come back yet for anybody that we um, help them out and, and process the, the loan applications for them. And the second thing is that if you go take a look closely at the SBA regulations, the historical SBA regulations say businesses like uh, real estate holding and development are not supposed to be eligible for SBA loans. But then when you take a look at the EIDL application on SBA.gov, they ask you if you're a landlord how much rent you lose. So you got to figure that at least for the EIDL, they originally intended this to help out some landlords. But my feeling is that after this announcement that they cap the loan amount and all that other stuff, I think you're going to start looking toward more conventional sources of financing. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Matt, for that. I want to flip it over to Jay quickly. Uh, Jay, do you, uh, what do you, with all this money coming into the, uh, all the money from the stimulus packages coming into the economy, how, how do you expect that to impact the economy over the next few months? So over the next few months, I actually don't expect a tremendous impact. I know everybody talks about uh, all this money flooding in from uh, flooding into the economy through QE and 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 through the repo markets, and not really through the repo markets, but in, in people think through the repo markets. Um, and there's a lot of concern over: Are we going to see inflation? Are we going to see um, uh, other potential short-term impacts of all this money coming in? And we're talking a lot of money. I mean, our our Typical, what we refer to as the M2 money supply is somewhere around uh, $15 trillion. There's about $15 trillion of, of, of cash and, and cash-like credit out there um, that can be moved around between people and businesses. And it's reasonable to assume that over the next few months, we're going to increase that. We've already increased that by a couple trillion. It's reasonable to assume we'll probably increase that by a few trillion more. So that $15 trillion can go to 20 or, or even get closer to $25 trillion over the, the next several months, which is a huge increase. And, and um, for those not familiar with the way this works, typically more money means more people have money to spend. And having more money to spend means you're going to spend more and you're going to put more into, into the economy and you're going to buy more stuff and you're going to go to more restaurants and you're going to buy more cars because everybody has more money because there's more money out there. And the problem there is that businesses, well, they have to keep up with all that demand. Restaurants have to hire more wait staff and they have to buy more food and, and manufacturing companies have to buy more manufacturing plants and warehouses and inventory and other businesses have to hire people and buy more office space. So all these businesses to keep up with demand because all this extra money is out there, they have to start buying equipment and inventory and, and, and warehouses and people. And the problem there is that all costs money and they pass that money on to consumers. And they, they pass that cost on con, to consumers and they pass that on in terms of higher product cost. And that's what we refer to as, as inflation. So typically speaking, when you put more money into the economy, you have inflation, things start to cost more money. And so there's a lot of concern that with all this money that's flowing into the economy that in a few months we could start seeing a bunch of inflation. Well, here's the thing. Like I mentioned, we start seeing inflation when there's all this demand on businesses, when people start spending all this money and businesses can't keep up with demand. It's really unlikely that over the next three, six, even 12 months, that we're going to see that type of demand. We're not going to see the economy pick up really quickly uh, over the next few months. After this whole lockdown event's over, um, a lot of businesses are going to return, maybe 80, 85, who knows, maybe 90% of businesses will figure out a way to come back. But there's going to be some percentage of businesses, 5%, 10%, 15%, that just don't come back. Maybe the owners were close to retirement anyway, and they decide this is the perfect time to, to throw in the towel. Um, 
maybe they were not doing so well leading up to this event and they say, I was just looking for that straw that, that, that like said, now's the time to get out and they shut down their businesses forever. There are going to be business owners who are just, they're, they're stressed over all this and they say, I'm just going to go get a job. And then they're going to be business owners who are just, I couldn't handle the financial stress of everything. I can't open up my business. I just don't have the, the, the financial means to reopen my business. So there's going to be millions of businesses, especially small businesses that never come back. And that means millions, if not tens of millions of people that don't have jobs as soon as this economy reopens. So it's likely that once this whole lockdown event ends, certainly we're not going to be at 25% unemployment. We're not going to be at negative 20% GDP like we're seeing now, but we're still likely to be at recession like numbers. We're still likely to be at six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent unemployment. We're still likely to be at flat GDP, maybe even slightly negative GDP. Uh, we're still likely to see retail numbers down because people are scared. They don't want to start spending money because they they don't know what's going to happen. Everybody has a little bit of PTSD. So over the next three, six, twelve months, I don't think that there's going to be a ton of of um, of economic growth in this country. And without economic growth, we're not going to see inflation. So I don't think short term that we need to worry about all this money flowing into the economy resulting in inflation. Now, typically speaking, the way QE is supposed to work is the Fed injects this money into the economy. They basically, they, they trade the banks all this cash for a bunch of assets that the bank has. And then at some point in the future, when the, the crisis is averted, the Fed, in theory, should be trading back. They should be giving the banks back their assets and pulling that cash out of the economy. So in theory, in six or 12 or 24 months, we should see those five or $10 trillion that's going to flow into the economy getting pulled out of the economy and going back to our original money supply. Problem is, we don't always or often see that. After 2008, back in from 2009 to 2014, there was four and a half trillion dollars that was pumped into the economy. 2016, we started pulling or the Fed started pulling some of that money out, but they never got more than half of that money out. So we still have an extra couple trillion in after 2008. We're likely to have many, many trillions that are left in after this. I don't see them pulling that money out anytime soon. So the risk of inflation longer term is certainly a risk. And there are a lot of other things that factor into whether we see inflation and how bad it is. So I'm not saying it will necessarily happen, but it's certainly a risk. Got it, Jen. I just have a good quick question. There's a lot of people in here asking, you know, uh, is well, while we're on the top of the economy, there's a lot of people asking, is now the right time to be buying, um, be buying real estate? Do you do you think now is the time people should be looking for real estate, or do you think there's going to be greener pastures, you know, or a better buying buying opportunity in a few months down the road? I think right now we're kind of in this place where we can't trust any of the information we're seeing. Um, we talked about this on the podcast that the three of us did last week where the real estate market, because there's not a lot of demand, um, because there's not a lot of, of trust in the numbers that we're seeing, it, it's a really inefficient market. Some houses can be going over list price. Some can be going for half of list price. We don't know what true values are today. And we certainly don't know a month or two or three from now um, when we come out of this, our prices are going to be higher. They're going to be much lower. They're going to be kind of flat. We don't know. So, my general advice to people is if you have to ask that question, if you're not experienced enough where you can kind of make an educated decision on which way to go, you're probably not in a position where you should be buying right now. 
Um, for those experts out there, I know plenty of people that, that have plenty of cash, that understand uh, uh, risk analysis, they understand um, how markets move and, and different exit strategies. For them, if you're comfortable investing right now, go for it. But for anybody that even needs to ask the question, should I be investing right now? My recommendation to them is use this time to prepare because I think, and I don't know for certain, but I think that there will likely be some much better opportunities in the next three, six, 12 months. Awesome, Jay. Thanks, thanks for that. I know, Matt, you, you, have, you want to weigh in on this topic, uh, so I'll flip it over to Matt. I agree with the last thing that Jay said before he turned it over, which is three, six, 12 months down the road, you're looking at better opportunities than you have today. Everything that I have seen on the transactional side as an attorney, both monitoring what my clients are looking to do and seeing what's actually out there and seeing what activity is going on right now, uh, now does not seem to be the time. There is not a lot of activity in the way of um, people making the decisions that they must liquidate portfolios, people making the decisions that their hair is truly on fire. Right now, there's too much exploration going on in terms of legal options, financial options. There's just too much up in the air and people need to see where the dominoes actually fall. It, it does not strike me right now as the time to go out hunting for deals. If you're fortunate enough, like, like some of my clients are, to have a strong cash position, the, the thing to do right now, in my estimation, is to wait. Matt, how, how has, uh, sorry, Tom, I'm going to cut you off. How, how, has, how has the volume of transactions um, gone over the past few weeks for you? It you has seeing? definitely decreased. Um, but the things that were in motion prior to COVID actually hitting have all completed. There were a couple of deals that we had. There's, there's some exceptions to that. One or two deals we had. Um, either during the due diligence period, they had a clear exit and they said, we're going to use this excuse to just yank right out and, and reevaluate our options. And then in another one, um, their deposit went hard, but then they, they actually ended up getting it back due to a material adverse change clause because the other side of the deal did not want to go through litigation. Um, and, and other than that, all the deals that were slated to occur anyway and were already in motion, they've either closed or they're on their way to closing. The problem has been starting new transactions after COVID has occurred, even though we have the capability to do it, the title companies have the capability to do it, and in many cases, the lenders have the capability, it's the parties to the transaction that are turning around, pumping the brakes, being like, you know what, now's not the time. And they're, they're kicking the can down the road a little bit. I mean, another data, another data point there for anybody that wants a data point. Um, so housing start numbers and housing starts are basically the number of uh, permits that are applied for by builders or people doing new construction uh, in a given month, basically getting ready to break ground on new construction. Uh, March numbers for housing starts were just released this morning, and it was the largest monthly year-over-year uh, uh, -year decline or month-over-month -month decline uh, since the 80s. Now, Honestly, it, it was down about 25%, so 25% fewer uh, uh, new construction started in March than the previous month. Honestly, I'm surprised it's not a larger drop, um, but that does give some indication that even in the construction industry, which for most states, 
are considered essential services. And back in March, this was before the lockdown had even taken place in much of the, 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 the month of March. Um, even back in March, we saw a huge slowdown. And builders are, are generally pretty good at doing their due diligence and figuring out where the market's headed and, and making decisions on when and if they should be building. So I think a lot of us should kind of be taking our cues. I have a feeling that, that come uh, next month when we see the April numbers, we'll probably be closer to 50 to 75% down. Um, but just the fact that builders are now saying, hey, we're not comfortable building in this environment. That's a good indication to the rest of us that now may not be the best time. Absolutely. No, we're, so thanks, Jay. We're getting a lot of questions in here about uh, a number of different things, the economy, but I just want to let everybody know out there who is asking, this will be available for replay. Uh, it will be released on the Real Estate CPA podcast, available on all podcast platforms this upcoming Tuesday. Uh, so if you do want to replay this, it will be available. Um, now, I do want to flip a question over to Brandon regarding the tax code. We do have a few people asking about the NOL uh, carrybacks that are taking place. Brandon, would you be able to just give us uh, a little bit of information on what's going on with NOL carrybacks uh, and how it will impact real estate investors? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the so pre-Tax Cuts Jobs Act 2017, you could carry an NOL back two years and forward 20 years, and you could apply the NOL forward uh, at 100% of your taxable income. The 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changed that and basically said you could not carry the NOL back. You could only carry it forward and you could only apply it at 80% of your taxable income going forward. The CARES Act three weeks ago changed it again and said that any NOL created in 2018, 19, or 20, you can carry back for five years. So what that means for real estate investors is we want to try to create NOLs. Net op in, 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 in NOL is a net operating loss. I'm not sure if I actually explained what that is. A net operating loss. We want to try to create a net operating loss. Now, a net operating loss is basically if I were to take my 1040, my form 1040, my tax return, and if I have more business losses than I do all other income, then I have a net operating loss. And that is something that I can carry back. Now it's not that simple, but that that's the gist of it. So now that I can carry net operating losses back five years, as long as they originated in 2018, 2019, or 2020, what this means for real estate investors is I want to try to create a net operating loss if I can. And there's a couple ways that you can do that. First, rental losses are presumed to be passive. So if I have a rental portfolio, the the income, the losses, that's all considered passive. It's a passive activity. The way that you get around that is you qualify as a real estate professional and you materially participate in the portfolio. If you can do both of those things, then the losses or the income will be considered non-passive. And that's the key. So if you can create these non-passive losses, um, the non-passive losses can then be used to offset any income and can be used to create a net operating loss if my non-passive losses are to such an amount um, that they exceed all of my other income. Now, oftentimes I get the question, well, what about my passive losses for my rental real estate? It's not going to count. So if you can't create non-passive losses, meaning you can't qualify as a real estate professional, uh, you can't materially participate in your portfolio, then you're going to have a passive loss. And that passive loss is going to be most likely suspended and carried forward unless you have other passive income to use against it. So you have to be able to qualify as a real estate professional. You have to materially participate in your rental real estate portfolio. And here's where it gets cool. If you can do that in 2020, um, if, if, if you can do that in 2020, 
I almost said you should quit your job. And then I was like, that's probably not a good thing to say on a webinar. <laughs> so it's not financial well, advice. It's not financial advice. Yeah, not financial advice. Thank you, Tom. Not financial investment advice. If you can qualify as a real estate professional and qualifying as a real estate professional, 750 hours in a real property trader business, uh, plus greater than half your time. If you can qualify as a real estate professional and materially participate, and you've made acquisitions in 2016, 17, 18, 19, or 2020, then you want to look on your 2019 or 2020 tax returns. You want to cost seg your portfolio, uh, large or small, doesn't really matter. Cost seg the portfolio, create really large losses with bonus depreciation for all those prior properties that you picked up, like 2016, 17, 18. If I'm filing the 2020 tax return, I file a form 3115 and a 41A adjustment. What that means is I'm just taking all that bonus depreciation that I didn't take because I didn't do a cost seg study in those years. I'm going to take it all in this current year. So I'm going to basically crush one of my years with losses. And since I'm a real estate professional and I materially participate, it's going to be a non-passive loss. And if I can do that to such an extent that my losses exceed my income, uh, then I have, a, I have a net operating loss that I can then carry back five years, which is incredible. And you file a form 1045 in order to do that. Hey, Brandon, does that make it difficult to get loans if I, uh, if I take a huge loss this year? Great question. So it can, but if you are using um, uh, bonus depreciation, then most bankers will add that back. So it should not. The other thing here too, that I don't think a lot of people realize. So our short-term rental clients have been absolutely crushed by, by COVID, right? Everybody stopped booking, stopped traveling, which makes sense. If you own short-term rentals, um, a short-term rental is not, as long as it's rented less than seven days or less than 30 days and no substantial uh, services are provided to the guests, meaning you're not doing like daily cleanups and linen services while the guests are still there. If that's you and that's a short-term rental, then that actually falls outside of the scope of section 469, which means that you do not have to qualify as a real estate professional in order to claim the losses as non-passive on your short-term rentals. You just have to materially participate in the short-term rental activity. The other interesting thing about short-term rentals is that they may not be considered residential property per the IRC. And what that means is that if it's not residential, then it's considered non-residential. It's a 39-year property and 39-year property now qualify to, uh, you, you can 100% bonus depreciate qualified improvement property, which is interior improvements to a non-residential property. So if you have short-term rentals, you need to be looking at your prior tax returns and asking, did I materially participate in this short-term rental activity? If yes, I have non-passive losses that I should be able to claim. Uh, it's still a Schedule E activity. It's not going to be a Schedule C activity. That's a big point of contention but I should have non-passive losses that I can now claim against my other income. If I have a big portfolio of short-term rentals, then it's a big loss, right? Maybe I'm cost segregating these properties too. And are, does my short-term rental, is it gonna be non-residential property? Is that what it's gonna be considered when we look at the IRC? If so, now I can also look at the qualified improvement property changes that were implemented as part of the CARES Act. Qualified improvement property is now considered 15-year property and eligible for 100% bonus depreciation. So. I can retroactively create a bunch of losses. So that's what we're wanting investors to do at this point is take a look at those prior tax returns and, and just scrutinize them, scrutinize, sit down with your CPA, ask them these questions. You know, am I, did I materially participate? And CPAs hopefully will say, I don't know. You need to tell me if you have a time log and what you did. Right. Um, but really important to do really important to do. And the time, the, the, the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. This is a 2020 thing to get done. 
Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be done by the end of this year, but it is a 2020 tax year thing to get done. Absolutely. Matt, do you want to add anything into that? Not in terms of the NOL and passive loss rundown. I think Randa did a great job. If you want me to chime in here with what I might call immediate liquidity tax strategies, um, I can run some of those down if only because I think logically it follows from what Brandon was going over. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the listeners would love to hear that. Yeah, sure. So, so there's a couple of things. It's, it's really not, it's, it's not a, a magic bullet, but there's a couple of things that you can do. What Brandon went over with the net operating losses is something that you can do when you file your, your 2020 income tax return. Um, the stuff that I'm about to run down is stuff that you can do now that will potentially get you liquidity from the federal government. Um, and here's the menu. Number one, I'm not going to go too deep into it because it's a bit of an esoteric rule. We don't really have time. But if you are caught up in the excess business loss rule, okay, and that is, um, that's buried in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the Trump tax cuts, but it hits some people hard in real estate because if you are both somebody who either fixes and flips or, or does ground up development and has an investment portfolio, you could have been hit by that if you took any losses on your development project. If you were caught up in the excess business loss rule, it got temporarily repealed for 18, 19, and 20. So if that happened to you, go amend your return now. Second, um, qualified improvement property, a lot more for tenants than for landlords. Uh, basically, what is that? That is, if you're a retailer or a restaurant, or you're somebody who rented space in 18, 19, or 20, and you spent money in those years to outfit the space you rented, there was a typo in the law that said you could not write off all those costs immediately. Under the old law in 17 and before, you used to take 15-year depreciation on those with some ability to take some upfront depreciation. Um, after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it was supposed to be all written off in year one. Turns out the typo said you couldn't do that. It took them three years almost to correct the typo, and with the CARES Act, they finally did. So if you were disallowed from writing off your improvements on space that you rented, uh, a lot of you are landlords, and it might not be useful to you, but if any of you ended up uh, getting into that, or if any of your tenants got into that, they might be able to open up some liquidity to, to pay you some rent money while this crisis is going on. Third thing, uh, retirement accounts. You have limited ability to get liquidity from your retirement accounts, up to 100 grand. You could do this one of two ways. If you are affected by COVID-19 hardship directly, what they define that as is you got diagnosed or your spouse got diagnosed or a child got diagnosed or you got laid off or something else directly affected you due to COVID-19 hardship, you can take a withdrawal up to 100 grand out of your retirement accounts and the penalty of 10% for an early withdrawal will not apply, but the tax will still apply. The catch is, however, that you've got three years to pay the tax instead of um, getting hit with it on your next tax return. So you get some liquidity by taking a withdrawal. However, what's available to everybody is you could lend up to 100 grand now out of your retirement account. Limit used to be 50 grand, uh, but you can now take a loan of 100 grand out of your retirement account if you're going through a liquidity crisis at the moment. So if you need to tap your retirement account, do it. Granted, while we all have the standard disclaimer and this is not financial advice that we're giving out today or tax advice or legal advice or any, any of the above, um, this, is a, this is a last resort because the problem with um, either taking loans or withdrawals out of the retirement accounts is um, you know, the interest that's running is not favorable to you. And if you don't end up paying the loans back, the tax is also not favorable to you. So if you really, really need liquidity, you can get it from your retirement account, but I would view it as a last resort. And then finally, 
for those of you that were limited by the interest rate deduction cap and you did not make the election out of it because you were a real estate business, um, instead of uh, being limited to 30% of EBITDA, that got bumped up to 50% of EBITDA. So for those of you who are syndicators in the private equity world, you may have been caught up in this and um, you may not have had, uh, uh, or you may have had a real tough choice opting out. This may help you if you haven't, um, if you haven't opted out already, this may help you um, remain opted in and still get the tax outcome you want. Um, so those are some things that you can do um, the first three options being things that you could do to get money in your pocket like now. It's not a great menu, but it's something. You can work with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got, I've got two quick things. First, if you're a syndicate and you don't know what the business interest limitations are, um, that's probably a problem. <laughs> so you need to check with your CPAs. The, the second thing, Matt, what you, what you said about the retirement accounts is totally true. First, you know, we, we've, we've had people hitting us up all week for the past three weeks asking how they can distribute funds from their retirement accounts. And the first thing I go is how are you negatively affected by COVID at this point? And they're like, Oh, well I'm not. <laughs> so you do have to be negatively affected. You either have to catch it or you have to be experiencing some sort of financial hardship as a result of it in order to, to qualify or, or, or in order to be able to take a COVID related distribution is what they're calling it. Um, but Jay, I wanted to kind of flip it over to you or, or at least get your, get your insight on this. So, you know, let, let's say that we've got some real estate investors. They're going through all of these motions on uh, getting this immediate liquidity, as Matt so uh, perfectly put it. Um, what do they do with the cash at this point, though? Are we sitting on it until Q3, Q4 this year? Uh, what are we doing? So not necessarily Q3, Q4, maybe Q3, Q4. Um, but I'm, I'm comfortable sitting on mine. Um, I invest in other assets outside of, of real estate. So um, if you like other assets outside of real estate, there are options. Actually, now is a great time if you're a business entrepreneur. Now's a fantastic time to be looking at buying a business. Um, maybe the best time in, in modern history, kind of like 2008 to, to 11 was for, for real estate. This could, be the, this could be a business boom for business entrepreneurs. Uh, so, but if you're, if you're interested in real estate, my suggestion is sit back right now, put that cash someplace safe. Um, you don't necessarily need a return. I wouldn't put it any place that, that I wasn't getting some, some basically risk-free return, even if that risk-free return were zero. Um, stick it under the mattress, stick it in a safe, stick it in a savings account. Um, because yeah, the, the opportunities will be here later in Q2, Q3, Q4. I assume, maybe not. I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, I, I, I think it's unlikely, but there are some people predicting that everything's going to return to normal in two months. Um, and so I, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't discount that. But, but my take is that there will be plenty of opportunities. And one of the biggest mistakes I see a lot of, uh, a lot of, investors make, even experienced ones, is they get impatient and they come across a half decent deal and they think I have to jump at this because I might not find a better deal. Um, sometimes it's will, it, it's worth taking that risk of, of holding off. And I think now is one of those times where if, you, if a fantastic deal, I bought a flip deal last week, um, but it's one that I'm willing to hold for the next five years if I have to. Um, it's that good of a deal. Um, but I'm comfortable. I mean, I, I like doing deals, but I'm comfortable waiting another couple months before I do anything significant. So other people should be as well. Yeah. You know, that, that, uh, that patience thing, I, I've seen a lot of my, uh, my friends jumping back into the stock market and I'm sitting there going, man, I, you know, to, to speak to what you and, and Matt were saying earlier, just wait a little bit for the dominoes to fall before we really kind of like make those sort of 
sort of moves. But also to your point, I mean, if you if you still find a good deal today, like a really good deal, there's nothing stopping you from from jumping on it. I'm really curious to hear Jay and Matt um, what you guys are kind of seeing real estate investors do, maybe in terms of pivoting or um, or how they're maybe proactively hitting tenants up. Uh, Tom and I were talking about this earlier today. You know, something that we were we, we've kind of seen is is multifamily investors are trying to increase the density. Or at least some of our clients, they're, they're trying to increase the density of their units, their occupancy. And what I mean by that is, if you have somebody in a two-unit apartment complex, you've got somebody. They're trying to say, "Hey, why don't you get a roommate, or why don't you downgrade to our studio?" Right. So they're trying to increase the density, sort of proactively, and reduce their overall risk. Um, and then Tom, Tom had some comments on it too. But I'm curious from all three of you guys, what have you kind of seen real estate investors doing, and uh, what, what do you think is prudent at this point? So I, I guess I'll start. Um, so there are two types fundamentally of, of, of asset investment types. There's, there's transactional and there's cash flow. Um, we either buy with the intention of um, increasing the value and reselling, or we buy with the intention of holding it and letting that asset throw off cash. Um, right now, I think is a really bad time to be doing anything transactional because we don't know, we can't trust asset values in, in most major asset classes. Um, so uh, I don't like transactional investing anywhere now, whether it be the stock market, whether it be real estate, whether it be trying to flip anything, you might try and flip for lack of a better term. Um, but cash flowing assets um, may or may not be correlated with the rest of the, the broader economy and what's going on right now. Uh, typically, real estate is, is resilient, relatively resilient to economic shifts or cash flowing real estate is, is resilient to, to economic shifts. So I have, would have no problem if somebody said, I'm, I found a great cash flow real estate deal, a single family or multifamily deal, um, and they underwrote it conservatively. When I say conservatively, I mean, assume that you're going to see maybe a 10% drop in, in market rents. Maybe you're going to see a 10% increase in vacancies. Um, if you underwrite it conservatively, if you focus on certain asset classes, uh, historically, um, class A tends to see the most rent compression um, during a downturn. Class B tends to see a decent amount of rent compression, but class C and below properties tend to hold up pretty well. We don't see market rents drop very much. In fact, um, for a lot of areas, class C and mobile home parks in 2008, rents increased. Um, because everybody needs a place to live and there will be a relatively small number of people that end up homeless, but most people are going to find a place to live and they're going to move down in class before they move back home or before they, they, they get a roommate. Um, so if, if you find a good class C rental unit in, and you underwrite it conservatively, um, I see no problem moving forward. Now in the the larger multifamily space, um, I think there's going to be certain sensitivities there that are going to make larger multifamily a bit risky right now. Um, I know a lot of uh, syndicators and other multifamily investors that are kind of a little bit, um, they're being very conservative right now. We, we had 450 units we had under contract a couple weeks ago that we decided to pass on, even though the numbers were good because... At the end of the day, uh, multifamily is going to depend on two things. It's going to depend on operating income and it's going to depend on cap rates. And it's very possible that risk premiums are going to go up. So cap rates are going to go up. And during any type of economic event like this, uh, net operating incomes are, are going to be at risk. People are going to 
Um, you're going to see higher economic vacancies. You're going to see higher physical vacancies, perhaps. You're going to see lower market rents. Um, so larger multifamily, I, I would tend to, to be a little bit more wary of, but single family or mobile homes, mobile home parks, um, now could be a great time to buy. Um, then there are other asset classes that tend to do pretty well during recessions. I mean, if you're on the, uh, if you're on the commercial side, self-storage tends to do very well during recessions. Like I said, people move down in class. They also move down in size of apartments and they need a place to put their stuff or they move in with roommates and they need a place to put their stuff. People don't like to sell their stuff. So self-storage does well. Medical centers tend to do very well. Um, this is a little bit of an exception this time around, but historically during a recession, people go back to school. Um, so if you own college rentals or if you're thinking about buying college rentals, obviously this time people aren't at school. They're not living in dorms or around universities. They're, they're moving home. Um, but once the lockdown's over, if we're in a recession, there's a reasonable chance that we're going to see a lot of people going back to school because they just don't have a good job to go back to. So college rentals is good. Um, if you like the retail side of things, um, strip centers that are that are anchored by grocery tend to do very well people don't go out a lot but when they do go out they, it, it's a lot of times to go grocery shopping and the businesses that, that they frequent are the businesses right around that grocery store that they go to so strip centers that are anchored by by grocery tend to do very well during these times so there are always going to be these types of asset classes and and niches within asset classes that tend to do well during a recession the important thing is understanding which ones those are, which ones those aren't, and underwriting more conservatively than you typically would. Awesome, Jay. Thanks for that. I want to flip it back to Matt. Matt, if you have anything to add, and then we're going to go into the federally-backed loans, the forbearance um, options that are available. Uh, so, Matt, uh, go ahead, flip that to you. I was actually going to tie it in because um, from a legal perspective, we don't get into the nitty gritty of people breaking down units um, and, you know, allowing roommates and things along those lines, really. Um, what we see is we see the negotiations with lenders. And for anybody out there, um, it, first off, if you're, if, if you're in the multifamily space and you don't know about the federally backed loan for parents, then you're living under a rock. Uh, it, it literally any loan that is backed by a federal government instrumentality or a government-sponsored entity that includes um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, that includes the FHA, that includes pretty much any HUD program, if, if the federal government has any sort of backing on your loan, it's a very, very uh, liberal definition, then you get automatic forbearance. It's a 30-day forbearance with two 30-day extensions automatically as long as you notify them in time, which is 15 days in advance of when the uh, forbearance uh, extension would kick in then um, that is your option number one. I mean, basically everybody I know who has a federally backed loan is, is getting forbearance on that. There's also federally backed loans on single family home mortgages. So anybody who's, you know, pretty much um, all of the principal personal residences and stuff like that are gonna uh, be under federally backed loans. So for those of you who have not explored that on your personal residence, um, you should do it. But even so, um, what I'm less familiar with and what my co-panelists might be able to chime in on is whether or not you can get a federally backed loan if you're fixing and flipping. Um, and if that's the case, I mean, it's still going to apply. It's a very broad thing. If you have a federally backed loan, you can get forbearance. If your loan is on um, a personal, you know, principal personal residence, the forbearance is typically longer. It's more like a six-month forbearance. It's really the Fannie and Freddie stuff that's got that total 90-day forbearance in it. But that has been measure number one. The second thing I want to share is basically what we've seen when people have gone to non-federally backed uh, lenders and they've asked for something in the way of forbearance. 
We've seen about a 75, 80% success rate with people who have tried to negotiate with, with their lender directly and get some sort of accommodation. Given that the courts are closed and given how backed up they're going to be when they come um, up to speed again after COVID uh, has somewhat normalized, they don't want to go to court. They don't want to step in and start operating the property. They don't want to take over anything. They, they would rather leave the property in the hands of the operator. And they are generally being understanding, like I said, 80-20. They're being pretty understanding about what's going on right now. There's about 20% that are being real tough and just being like, well, you know what, I'm not doing anything. But at the same time, certain states, like my home state of New York, by governmental order have basically turned around and said, you're not foreclosing. Um, on certain loans, we want you to defer collections, and they're, they're being um, pretty forceful about it all the way up at the, the senior state government level. So that's what the, the, you know, the investors are doing that we've seen. I saw at least one thing come in on CMBS, and I did want to touch on CMBS. There's, there's a couple things you need to know on CMBS. One of them is that they temporarily change the tax rules, okay? Um, I'm not going to bore people with how CMBS really works because I'm not even an expert at it myself. But when you have a CMBS vehicle, it's known as a REMIC, a real estate mortgage investment conduit. Under normal circumstances, a REMIC can't do forbearance. They can't do loan modifications. They can't do workouts, period. The federal government, uh, through the IRS, put out a pronouncement saying, actually, this time you can this one time. So they have a pronouncement that says if you have a CMBS loan, they will be able, without sacrificing their tax-favored status, to negotiate a forbearance or a loan modification with you this one time. So even if you have loans that are CMBS, don't hesitate to go to your master servicer and say, hey, by the way, we're having trouble with COVID-19. What can we work out here? Because they have relaxed the tax rules. And that is usually the reason why under any other circumstance, if you're struggling under CMBS, you're basically dead in the water. But not this time. What what are your what are your thoughts on the timing of starting this conversation with lenders? Because I, I a few weeks ago I was having this same sort of conversation with a few of our clients in the multifamily space, and their thought process was, well, I mean, look, we we don't even know again where the dominoes are going to fall. We don't know if if starting that conversation today is even going to result in what we're going to need thirty days from now. Um, curious to hear hear takes on that. So there is an expiration period, I believe, under the CARES Act of when you can apply for the forbearance. It's not forever. So you have to be very mindful of that deadline. Um, and I believe that deadline asked for forbearance is June 30th. Don't quote me on that because um, I don't have the legislation in front of me. But it's not like this option is open to you forever and ever and ever. So you need to be very mindful. The first thing you should do, I feel, I mean, look, just as, as, as um, a lawyer who gets involved in some of this, or at least my colleagues do, it's never a bad thing to just start the dialogue with your landlord anyway, uh, not your landlord, your lender, and say, hey, listen, you know, this is the financial situation with respect to our property here. We're going to keep a close eye on it, but here's what we are considering, and you should be on notice. Um, you know, it's the same way that landlords should have good relationships with their lenders and tenants should have good relationships with their landlords, broadly speaking. Um, I would not save this until the time when you definitively need it to go to the landlord and be like, surprise, we're doing forbearance now. Um, I would turn around to him and just be like, hey, here's the thought process. Here's what the numbers look like. And um, talk through it with them to, to just make sure that if you do need to put this in gear, it's a nice, smooth conversation at that time. Awesome. So we have uh, we have some uh, questions coming in here around uh, California uh, potentially uh, requiring a rent reduction, a twenty five percent reduction in rents through legislation. 
just wanted to see if Matt or Jay uh, or Brandon, if you had any uh, comments on that or just any comments in general on that type of. My only comment is sounds like something California would do. <laughs> Move out. <laughs> That's my yeah. comment. <laughs> yeah, you know, California in general, the tax code. Um, you know, Brandon and I, I know, I know, we're both very familiar. For example, in uh, California, you, the real estate professional status does not apply in the state of California, um, and there's just a million and one other uh, tax disadvantages to living in California. So. People always ask me, what do I do? I'm in California. What do I do? Dot, dot, dot. I'm like, yeah, move to Texas or Nevada. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so. Um, I should chime in with one thing about California. If anybody wants me to um, go litigate for them, unfortunately, I wouldn't need to be paid to do this. If anybody wants me to go litigate for them, the constitutionality of that rule that California has you follow your 1031 all around the country and then have you pay California taxes regardless of when and where you sold your replacement property, I will challenge that constitutionality because that is totally unconstitutional. I, I just need to plug that in. No, that's awesome. And, you know, we have some more questions coming in here on, I, I know we talked about this earlier for everybody who is, who just joined late. Uh, we will be replaying this on the Real Estate CPA podcast, but still a lot of people asking in there, if, uh, if you're a landlord, should you be applying for the EDIL loan? At this point, I'd have to say um, not really, unless you want to do it for your, your uh, property management company. Because after this very recent announcement in the last 24 hours that all of a sudden we're not doing it unless it's uh, 25000 or less, yeah. I mean, for a while, the landlord is just like, uh, you know, it's like, give me a break. It barely helps me. Yeah, it's just not worth it. Yeah, that, that was our thing, too. It was like, well, we had all these landlord clients applying and we're like, this is great. They're going to have some working capital. And then they came out with that. And it's like, well, now it's just not even not even worth worth going for. It's just so such a small loan at this point. Hey, Matt, I'm actually curious. So on the PPP loan, you have to certify, right? You have to make all sort of certifications. What are the legal implications and what should you do, what should you do to potentially protect yourself? What are, the, what are the legal implications of making those certifications, specifically that economic uncertainty certification? It's under a penalty of perjury. So you'd better have backup if you don't have actual financial harm that has manifested yet or anything that's reasonably certain to happen. You'd better have something that you're able to, to use in terms of objective paperwork to justify that you really needed that loan. Because if you receive that loan and then for whatever reason, um, the media and a bunch of other people throw up arms and say, well, you know, this uh, program is rigged and there's people who receive loans that shouldn't have received loans. Um, you better have uh, you better have your story straight. You better have your paperwork lined up because um, when you make that certification, you're swearing on a penalty of perjury. So, uh, you know, if, if you don't need the, the PPP, there's going to be enough liquidity out there that you'll and if you're in a decent financial position, you're going to be able to go out there. You're going to be able to get loans the, the, the traditional way. So um, you know, so be mindful of that. But we're gonna have to see. I mean, I, I believe there's there's an eighty five to ninety percent chance they're gonna they're gonna put more capital into the PPP anyway. So they will open it back up, is my opinion. So we do we, we do have someone in here saying to, uh, just once a clarification. Yes, uh, we did say the real estate professional status does not apply in California. So it's at the federal level, but uh, and the California state level does not apply. Uh, and you can find that directly on the California uh, state website. I forgot exactly if it was the, the, the FTB website, but it is, it is, it is there. If you Google it, I'm sure you could find it. I want to just ask a, a clarifying question for Jay. We did have uh, a question come in 
Uh, you said to avoid transactional uh, type of businesses, uh, but isn't buying a business transactional, isn't uh, an auto store or a restaurant transactional, what type of businesses would you be looking for? Well, certainly all businesses in and of themselves are transactional. That's what businesses do. They, they transact. You, you, you buy and sell food. You buy and sell car parts. You buy and sell whatever it is. Um, so when I say transactional, um, the, the better analogy there is I wouldn't be buying and selling businesses right now. Um, I wouldn't be buying a business at what you think is a low price with the intent of, and people do this just like they do with real estate and they do with cars and they flip everything with businesses. People buy businesses, they fix them up, um, meaning they improve the, uh, the, the net operating income and then they sell them off. Um, and just like I wouldn't be doing it with, with real estate right now because we don't know which direction real estate values are headed. I wouldn't buy a business right now with the intent of, in three or six months selling that business to somebody else because businesses may go down in value in the next three or six months. So when I say transactional, avoid transactional um, uh, 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 investing, I'm not saying don't buy a business. Business is a cash flow thing. If you hold it, it's just like you can say uh, owning a buy and hold uh, a piece of property. Sure. It's transactional. Your, your tenant pays you rent every month. That's a transaction, but you're holding that, that, that piece of real estate long-term for cash flow. Likewise with the business. Now's a great time to buy a business that you hold long-term for cash flow. Jay, I actually have a question about that. So we, we had you on the podcast, uh, this, did it release last Tuesday, this past Tuesday, Tom? I think it was just this week. Okay, cool, cool. So that, that's out. Um, and that was a great discussion because we, we kind of dove into a lot of that stuff. I, I was wondering though, you know, kind of continuing that conversation about, um, there's going to be a lot of businesses that potentially come on market Q3, Q4, and then also for the next few years, this is just the nail in the coffin for a lot of those business owners. They're tired, they're worn out. Uh, which I can, I can totally attest to being a business owner myself. Uh, but anyway, the, the question that I have is uh, what, what size businesses are we talking about here? When, when we say small, right? Does that mean $100,000 in revenue? Or are we talking like 5 million revenue? It, it's just like real estate. It's all over the board. And just like with real estate, you can buy, and, and it's funny because as you dig into to businesses, the, the, the analogy to real estate really holds in so many areas. Uh, just like with real estate, um, you have a couple different options. You can do it transactionally. You can buy a business to flip it, or you can buy a business to hold it for cash flow. Um, you can buy a business as a stabilized piece of cash flow. So just like you can buy a stabilized apartment building or, or multifamily or house um, where you go in, it's turnkey and you just start collecting rent from day one and you don't really have to do any active management or renovation. Same thing in a business. You can buy a business that has 20 employees and a general manager and it's, it's generating income year after year after year. It's on autopilot. It has its marketing streams and it has its systems and, and processes. Or you can say, hey, I want to buy a business business that is a value add business that that needs to be quote unquote restored, renovated. Um, and you can buy a business that isn't well run. It's not well managed. Um, basically, just like with an apartment building, it boils down to two things. You want to maximize income and minimize expenses. And likewise, in a business, if you think you have the ability to take over a business that's mismanaged and you can increase the income it's generating and you can decrease the expenses and increase the overall net operating income, that increases the value of a business. Because just like with, with cash flowing real estate, the value of a business is directly Directly related, directly proportionate to its net operating income. Now, if you want to buy a 
value add business, one that you have to go in and work in and do a lot of work, you're going to get it for a whole lot cheaper than you are a business that basically you buy it and it's on auto, autopilot and you just start collecting uh, checks every month. So it, it really, it depends on what you're looking for. Are you looking for a project? Are you looking to, to, to go in and, and be the guy that renovates the business? Or are you just looking to take a, a pot full of cash and invest it in something that, that throws off eight or nine or 10 or 20% every year? Mm-hmm. Real quick. Uh, so Austin asked in the chat, he, he asked, how do you choose what type of business to buy? And um, we, we talked about that a little bit on the podcast too. And I'd actually be really curious to hear from Matt as well. Cause I know Matt, you, you are a vice managing partner at your firm, which is business owner level. Um, but for me, for me, what that means is figuring out what am I good at or, or understanding, hopefully I figured it out by now. What am I good at? <laughs> and, and how can I apply those skills to various businesses? So for me, it doesn't necessarily mean that I won't go and buy a product-based business, but because I run a service-based business, I might be a little bit like my skills will translate better with that service-based business. And then for me, I really like the marketing piece. I really like the education piece. So I need to buy a business where I can go in and um, systematize processes, put a team in place and kind of have that team self-manage and run. And then I can come in and help with the marketing and the education of the clients and things like that. So for me, what that means is I can't buy a business with less than five employees. I need the team to be able to continue running without a ton of my day-to-day involvement. But I think it's really personal and I'd, I'd love to hear from everybody else on the on the panel too. Sure, um, so I'll, I'll go and then I guess Matt can go because he's still on mute, so. Um, it, again, there's a lot of personal aspects of it. Um, again, just like in real estate, some people love flipping houses. Some people don't want to deal with it. Some people have more time. Some people have more cash. Um, some people have more are, are more detail oriented. So it's the stuff that you're good at and the stuff that you enjoy. Um, but then there are other things. So right now, given where we are in the economic cycle, um, I'm looking at businesses and I have been for the last few months that are recession resistant. So I'm not going to go buy a car dealership right now even though car dealerships may be a a great business in general. Um, I'm not going to buy a restaurant right now. I'm not going to buy a business that requires tourism to be doing well. I'm not going to go buy something down near, near Disneyland or Disney world. Um, I want those businesses that do well in any market. I recently bought a, a, a firewater mold remediation business. Um, one, I don't enjoy that, but I don't work in the business. So that's that I don't, I'm not the guy that's actually there cleaning up the, the mold or the, the flood or whatever. Um, but it's a nice recession proof business because even in the worst of times, people are going to find their houses flooded for some reason or another, or there's going to be fires or there's going to be mold and people aren't going to say, I'm going to wait till the economy gets better to, to, to pump out that four inches of water in my basement. Um, and then the second piece is they're not paying for it. A lot of times this is covered under insurance. So the insurance companies are paying for it. And regardless of whether we're in an economic boom or an economic recession, uh, insurance companies are still going to be paying out. So for me right now, uh, recession resistant is really important. And then likewise for me, um, I, I like businesses that have a reasonably high barrier to entry. Um, I know everybody wants to go out there and start an Amazon selling business or write an ebook or do a million other things that 
you're going to have a billion competitors. You're going to have a million competitors. And, and um, to really stand out, you either have to be the cheapest or you have to be the absolute best. And I don't like to, to compete on price. And I also don't like to compete on, on, my, on my intelligence because I'm not the smartest guy out there. Um, I'd rather compete on some area that I have some, some expertise or knowledge that other people don't. So I'll buy a business like, again, the, the, the remediation business is, is one I love. Um, it requires you to be able to manage employees. It requires you to be able to do some really interesting things in the marketing space. I'm not going to go into details, but the marketing is difficult. Um, it's a 24 hour business because people have floods and fires in the middle of the night. So we need to be able to answer phone calls in the middle of the night. So there are a whole lot of things that make this business less sexy and attractive to a lot of people and difficult for a lot of people to do which means I'm going to have fewer competitors in that business than I would if I just went out and tried to compete in the ebook writing business. Gotcha. That's an excellent answer. Matt, want to ask if you have any opinions on that. And then after, after that, if you'd be able to go into the QOZ and, and 1031 exchange extensions that we've been seeing. And then after that, we'll go into Q&A. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think in terms of, of what you'd be looking to buy, the only word of caution I have on buying businesses is that I read an article on the Harvard Business Review website uh, two days ago, and it was called Managing Liquidity Crisis, if any of you want to Google it, in which they said, uh, between distressed debt, private equity, and hedge funds, you have a total of $1 trillion of dry powder. So if you're going to go out there and you're going to get into the business of acquiring um, going concerns that are not real estate, uh, that is what you're up against, and um, you're almost guaranteed to be a very, very small fish in that arena, and it's very, very difficult to compete, and you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to do two things. One of them is what Jay and Brandon were talking about, which was, you know, go where you know stuff, uh, or as the great Charlie Munger puts it, um, play the games where you have the aptitudes. You're not going out there to, to just try and find a deal. It's in, in, the, in the game of investing in businesses, it's a lot more than that. I feel if you're going to invest in a business, then do it the way that you know, which is credit tenant, triple net lease. Um, if you like the business and the business cash flows, then you're going to do very, very well as that business's landlord who doesn't even have to manage the property. So if you want to start going out there and looking for stuff, you can go triple net and double net. And, and you know, to my experience, um, Private equity and, and all those other large players are not too big a fan of taking triple net leases in 7-Elevens and McDonald's because there's not much value for them to add there for the most part. So um, you, know, you might have an exception in, 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 a, in a company like Blackstone, but you know, even they'll buy the stuff in bulk. If, if you want to start looking at businesses, having a triple net lease with a credit tenant is investing in the business. So that's the approach that I would recommend if, if you're looking to scoop up business interests as part of this downturn. Um, but going to the, the QOZ and 1031 part, really briefly, the QOZ deadlines, I'm not so concerned with, right? And the, the IRS notice that we're talking about here is uh, notice 2020-23. That was the notice that came out and said, listen, for all these different things that are time sensitive under the code and the regulations, you have a blanket extension until July 15th. Some very astute 1031 commentators turned around and said, wait a second, if you go to Revenue Procedure 2018-58, in Section 17, what you'll see is you'll see a supremacy clause that says, in the event that anybody references this notice, you get an extension of the amount under that notice having to do with the disaster or 120 days, whichever is longer. A lot of people turned around, they pointed their finger, and they said, take a look at Notice 2020-23. 
it referenced the revenue procedure, which means that um, 1031, 45, and 180 day deadlines get a 120 day extension, right? And I turned around and said, I don't know about that. It's a solid argument. Um, it's definitely something reasonable that you could put forth as an interpretation of what they said. But more likely, based on the idea that they gave a blanket extension to July 15th, it's looking like anybody who's got those deadlines for 1031s is getting any extension to July 15th. The crazy thing about that is a qualified intermediary I work with pointed out like, hey, wait a second, you know, if you had a January or February exchange, then you're like out of luck on your 45 days if that period didn't end um, on April 1st or April 15th or whatever the notice date was exactly. And, um, and, and they said, you know, and the guy said to me, that doesn't seem very fair. And I was like, you're totally right about that too. So you're going to need to wait for some IRS clarity if you had a 1031 exchange that kind of got caught uh, in between a little bit. And, um, you know, and, and you'll see whether or not you get any relief from a subsequent pronouncement. In terms of QLZs, the reason why I'm not worried, right, of course, your, your 90% test was delayed from June 30th until July 15th, or if you just started a fund that got delayed further if the um, date was supposed to start before July 15th. Um, but generally speaking, the reason why I'm not con so concerned about QLZs is because all the penalties that apply under QLZs have a reasonable cause exception, and um, COVID-19 is always going to be a reasonable cause. As long as you can show that it materially affected what you were doing, your QOC deadlines um, should be okay regardless. So I'm not so concerned with notice 2020-23 in terms of opportunity zones, but I am um, more concerned about how it affects certain 1031 exchanges, and we're going to have to wait and see. Thanks, Matt. And we're going to get into Q&A in just a second, but uh, just wanted to, to, to throw it to the, the panelists could, starting with Brandon, uh, going with Jay, and then Matt, if you'd just be able to give your contact information out to everybody who is listening, if they wanted to get in contact with any of you or for any reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just reshared uh, the speaker slide that we put together. But uh, again, Brandon Hall, CPA. Brandon Hall, CPA. I'm Brandon Hall. I am a CPA. Uh, you can contact me at www.therealestatecpa.com or you can email me at brandon.hall at hallcpallc.com. Either one of those works. And if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn too, feel free. Uh, so I am, you can check out my website, 123flip.com. So if you're interested in flipping houses, there's a lot of free education there. I don't sell anything. So um, um, go check that out. Uh, my main website is jscott.com where um, just more stuff about me. Again, don't really sell anything other than some books. Um, and if anybody ever wants to contact me, uh, j at jscott.com, just the letter j at jscott.com. You can get in touch with me. And one thing I will plug, because I'm very proud of it, my wife and I are co-hosts again of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, mm -hmm. where we interview basically everything from brand new entrepreneurs up to some of the the biggest names in the world in the business scene. So uh, check out the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast if you haven't. Well, guys, I am in the business of selling something. It's legal service. Uh, so I'm on the right-hand side of the, uh, of the pre presenter slide here. Uh, my email is uh, there on the bottom right. So if you'd like to reach out to me, send me an email at your convenience, and um, I'll do everything I can to help you. Nothing I say in any reply is legal advice unless we have an engagement letter, um, and it's not tax advice either. Um, but I just want to, even though we're going to have this Q&A and this banter session, I want to say thanks a lot, guys, for bringing me aboard on this. Um, it has been real fun so far.
you know, Matt, I got to say that you, you are an absolute beast. Um, I'm, I, I, I have a list of CPE courses. I, I have a list of CPE courses I take, and one of them thing is anything by Matt Rappaport. So uh, <laughs> I, I will say that. But uh, going into the Q and A, hold on, uh, real quick, real quick, just because this is going to be on our podcast. Matt's email is m e r at f r b law dot com. Just for anybody that's listening audio only. Awesome. Thanks, Brandon. So we have, um, so we have a question that's coming in about the forbearance is, uh, by a few people coming in through the chat box. And also one of our clients asked me to ask this. So, um, it, it does make sense. If you take a forbearance loan, what are the negative consequences, if anything, on your ability to take a loan in the future? I think uh, specifically credit is in question and that could go for Jay, uh, Brandon or, or Matt, whoever wants to chime in. Uh, so I am the, probably the least of the, of the experts on this panel on that question, but I have heard that the answer is, is currently uncertain, but maybe that's not true. I'm punting to, uh, to Matt or Jay. So. <laughs> I was going ahead and I was, um, I was typing a response to uh, one of my friends in the chat. So, um, so this is about the forbearance, correct? And the impact yeah. on credit or the ability to, to get loans in the future? Um, I would have to agree, Jay, that it's, it's, it's uncertain at this moment. There has been nothing explicit out there from anybody that has said, will this affect like overall credit and things along those lines? You know, my instinct is this. Given that the federal government and many state governments' attitudes toward what is happening with um, this entire crisis, you know, I, I have a feeling that they're not going to look too kindly on any of this, that if any of these lenders are, you know, like I heard from one of my clients, you know, if I go to the servicer on my Fannie Freddie loan, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be blacklisted or I'm going to be, you know, uh, uh, thrown on the naughty list or, or something along those lines. You know, I don't think the federal government is going to tolerate the practice. And I also think that it, it, that cuts both ways. If you're the borrower and you're going to be thrown on the naughty list because you went out and you, you um, asked for forbearance, whether it's a federally backed loan or it isn't, okay, um, you know, if, if you have passed around to all the people that you know in business that somebody threw you on the naughty list and generally that's the way that they're going to treat you as a borrower, when credit opens back up again, even though the, the federal government has done a lot to keep liquidity going, when the credit opens back up again, all of a sudden the, the bank finds itself on the naughty list. The lender finds itself on the naughty list with respect to all the borrowers. And, and as a business practice, I never put it past banks to have a, a bad business practice ever. Um, you know, if, if Wells Fargo is any example or some of these other places, um, you know, countrywide financial and stuff. But other than that, I mean, you know, I just think even if um, the federal government somehow tacitly tolerates this stuff going on, it's, it's not good business for the lenders to be doing this. And, and I don't think there's, there's much avoiding it either. I'm curious on your thoughts on this because I, I was talking about this with a couple of clients and they were, they were asking me about the forbearance and I was like, I, I have no idea. Um, I've become a, uh, uh, I've been looking at the loan stuff for like three weeks. So <laughs> I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but my question was, okay, yeah, if you're a banker, you can look at this in one of two ways, right? You could look at this as, okay, they're requesting forbearance because they are mismanaging their cash. Or you could look at it on the flip side and say they're requesting forbearance because they're getting ahead of the problem and they're smart business people. So I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it, but, but to your point, Matt, it's like, well, yeah, if, I mean, if, if these banks are going to crack down and then at the end of the day, that's going to get out. 
And you, you mentioned media pressure at one point earlier during this, this whole Q and A, I think media pressure too can kind of sway banks in that decision-making, right? I would agree. Certainly. Okay. One more question on this uh, and then we'll move on. Uh, there's, there's some banks out there that are requiring like a balloon payment. Like they'll give you the forbearance period for the next 90, 180 days, whatever it's going to be. And they're requiring you to make a, like a balloon payment at the end. Um, do you think banks, anybody here on this panel think banks will be open to negotiating on that come the next 90 to 80, 180 days. And I know that they would be put on the bank would be in the audience if they didn't, but I just want to get your opinion on it. I, I certainly can't speak from any inside knowledge or anything. Just common sense tells me that, yes, they're going to have to be. Um, we, we saw a lot of restructuring of loans after 2008. And I'm not, call, I'm not saying this is going to be like 2008. Um, but I think that given the current debt, consumer debt levels um, of the average American, there are going to be a lot of people who aren't going to be in a position to, to make a balloon payment at the end of a few months. Um, I think it's going to get interesting both with uh, mortgages and also um, with, uh, so there, there's been a moratorium on evictions um, in a lot of places. And so there are a lot of people that aren't paying their rents right now. And they're going to have the same issue with landlords, which is going to be less of a, a federally mandated thing, but more of a, of, of, of a civil thing where they're going to be tenants who are going to be negotiating with landlords come July, August, September uh, on back rent. And, and so this is going to be a question, not just how it's going to be handled at the federal level with the GSEs, um, but how it's also going to be handled one-on-one -on -one with a lot of landlords dealing with their tenants. And I think it's going to be a big issue that's going to have a lot of ramifications moving forward, just given what, what the typical um, consumer uh, financial situation looks like these days. I want to ask Matt a question about the, the renters not paying. And, and I, I want to flip it over to the commercial side, right? So you've got all these businesses that are kind of basically organizing rent strikes. They're implementing force majeure. Matt, do you see a heck of a lot of litigation playing out um, over the next couple of years on all of this? Yes. But at the same time, let me say this too. I see the litigation playing out. We already see it. I mean, our litigation department has already received inquiries about this on both sides of the aisle, tenant side and landlord side, and, and in certain select instances, lender side. But let me also say another thing. In addition to co-signing everything that Jay said, which I think was dead on accurate from the perspective of um, just the mechanics, take it to the legal for one second. And in addition to, to what I said in response to Brandon's most recent question, think about the idea that you have two factors at play if you're going to go the route of I'm playing hardball and sorry and I want to foreclose or I want to kick you out and I want to go in and get new tenants in or I want to um, take over the property. Number one, you will face the most backed up court system of all time. You know, the court system is normally backed up. Now all of a sudden you've got the combination of the courts have been out and out closed and even when they resume virtual proceedings, those are going to be limited proceedings, meaning they will not have virtual options for every type of court proceeding, just some stuff. So if you're going to go out and start a new action, by the time that the courts return to normal operations, this will be the most backed up court system that you've ever, ever seen, regardless of your jurisdiction. And the second thing is, think about just from the optical standpoint, regardless of what the law actually says, think about from the optical standpoint, what the judge is going to say to you when you turn around and the, and the evidence uh, in terms of the correspondence by email or whatever between you and the other side of this thing says you were playing hardball in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, you, if, if you want an unsympathetic judge, that's a great way to get one. The way Especially I if you're in California, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yes.
with that being said, we have another question that's been coming in quite frequently here today. And that is if you are a short-term, you know, the short-term rental market has been getting unbelievably hit by this. I think anybody uh, could see that. Um, but what is, if they, if, what remedies, if any, do they have, especially if they own it free and clear during this period of time? I definitely think that's like, uh, Jay probably, well, I know, I don't know, Jay, if you have any short-term rentals, but I know that you're, you've owned quite an extensive portfolio in the past. The only thing that I'll say is that from a tax perspective, again, going back to short-term rentals, if they fall outside the scope of section 469, you don't have to be a real estate professional. You can materially participate, get a non-passive loss, uh, potentially qualify for QIP, qualified improvement property that Matt was explaining. You can get a tax refund if you've not been follow, f- filing correctly in 2018 and 2019 and in 2020. So that's what I would say is if you own short-term rentals, check that out for a potential rebate from the government by retroactively getting those returns fixed. But from an actual operational perspective, I'm going to, again, punt to Matt and, and Jay. <laughs> yeah, from an operational perspective, what I would say is that um, hopefully, I know a lot of people didn't do it, but uh, what a lot of us have been telling people to do for the last few years when buying short-term rentals is when you underwrite them, uh, underwrite them as a long-term rental. Make sure the numbers make sense as a long-term rental because um, when something like this happens and short-term rentals suddenly go out of favor because uh, people stop traveling or tourism decreases in your area or for whatever the, whatever reason, um, the, the numbers no longer work as a short-term rental, um, you want to make sure that the, the property works as a long-term rental. Um, I have a feeling that there are going to be a whole lot of short-term rentals that go away or that, that have to get sold off. I think that's going to be the, the REO of 2020. The, the 2008 REO of 2020 is going to be the, the Airbnb or vacation rental. Um, and I think there are going to be a lot of these properties that are getting, going to get sold over the next year or two. And what I would say to anybody that's looking at this as, a, um, as an opportunity, and I certainly am. I mean, I don't own any vacation rentals currently. I've been waiting sort of for this type of event. I, I live in Siesta Key, which is like the number one beach in the country. So um, we get a lot, of, uh, a lot of short-term rentals around here. Um, when I go to start picking up these short-term rentals, I'll be underwriting them as long-term rentals. And my offer price, what I'm willing to pay on them will be based on what they can bring in in income in terms of a long-term rental. Um, And if they work under those numbers, I'll buy them. I'll hold them as a long-term rental until the market rebounds. And then I'll convert them back to short-term rentals. But know that any time that this might happen in the future, um, I will have underwritten the deal as a long-term rental. And I can always return to that business model if necessary. I think too, you're going to see a decrease in supply of short-term rentals. So, and, and, and I didn't come up with this. I was on some webinar that I was, uh, or some group meeting that I was hosting and somebody said, yeah, you know, you're, you're going to see a, a drop in demand, but you're also going to see a drop in supply as people take short-term rentals off market, um, as they convert them to long-term rentals or longer term rentals or just liquidate them. And then they're converted to long-term rentals. So the, the thought process was if you wanted to hold out as a short-term rental without locking something in, you might be okay once things open back up because you'll be one of the few that did hold out in your area, which I thought was really interesting. And, and obviously, this is not financial advice or investment advice, but just something else to consider. Jay, it'll what are be, you, what, It'll be a game of chicken. So who, who's yeah, well, yeah. to hold out the longest to, to wait for everybody else to go away? And the people that can hold out the longest are the ones that are better capitalized at the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, 
what about the rental arbitrage people? That's been something that's been popping up over the past like year and a half. This whole like I, I'll rent it out, I'll, I'll lease it long term, and I'll turn around and short term rent it to arbitrage that a little bit. So long term, aka lease. all of WeWork and Notel. <laughs> okay, so Matt has some stuff to say on <laughs> too. Yeah, exactly. So what about those guys? How are they affected, or or how will they be affected? I mean, I mean, imagine that they're going to be crushed. And just have a bunch of leases without the underlying asset, right? I mean, is it like a WeWork type of? Yeah, I, I imagine the commercial, I'll let Matt speak to the commercial world. In the single family world or, or, or the short-term rental world, yeah, we see a lot of that as well where people are renting out to, uh, to Airbnb hosts who then turn around and uh, they arbitrage it. Um, and it's been a, a great business model. And luckily, the, the owner of the units typically underwrote those units as long-term rentals and they were just, uh, and they're actually leasing them out as a long-term rental just to an Airbnb host. My guess is they're just going to take a lot of those back. The Airbnb hosts are going to break the leases. Um, it's going to turn out to be kind of a, not a win-win, but it's going to be a, a best case scenario for everybody. Nobody's going to lose their shirt on those. Hey, we got one more question. I think we're coming up here uh, on time, but uh, if someone's in a if someone's in a commercial lease right now, let's just say they're in a triple net lease, um, do you think and, and they're unable to be eligible for any of these programs? Should they be you know should they be uh, should they be negotiating with their landlords? And what's a reason? What's a, what you know? How should they approach the landlords about negotiating? If you're a cheesecake factory, you just don't pay your lease. You just don't pay your rent. <laughs> I'll let somebody else take this with. Yeah, I'm gonna let Matt go. <laughs> I want to hear the. No, I, I would. I would say, look, if you're if you're gonna to go to your landlord, um, go early. We touched on that earlier. Um, and in addition to approaching the landlord early, um, I would turn around and I would think about what you want that negotiation to look like. Um, you what you're probably not gonna get is you're you're not gonna get a okay. You're you're off the hook for the next sixty to ninety days, even if you're not occupying the property. Um, what we've seen work is we have seen, even in long-term leases, we have seen, um, you know, 90 to 120 days get amortized over the remainder of the lease. That's been a pretty good position. So if you want to make it such that you don't have to spend any money on rent, there are some landlords that are willing to say, okay, then go ahead and, and take the, uh, foregone rent and amortize it over the remainder of the lease, sometimes with interest. Um, other times they've done partial pay me part up front and um, delay part of it until the end of the year or pay uh, delay part of it until your operations are back to normal. Um, it's, it's just, I think it's a generally good adage to take every opportunity from the moment you negotiate your lease all the way up through operation and, and having everything on the ground to cultivate a positive relationship with your landlord. Because it is in times like this that when you have goodwill built up, these negotiations will go better than they, they otherwise would. Uh, the other thing I think that it would be important to do, and a lot of this goes to psychology. It doesn't go to law and it doesn't go to investing and it doesn't go to anything. But try your best to put your ear to the landlord's own considerations and see whether or not your, your landlord is willing to tip his or her hand in terms of what might be at stake there. Because if they've got a recalcitrant lender, that's probably going to pass down to you. And then you're going to have to come up with something creative in order for the landlord to meet his or her obligations to the, to the lender. And, and that chain is, is the better perspective you can get on that, the better position you'll be in 
to put something forth that is going to work for both you and the landlord. And you, you got to be ready to compromise. I, it's going to be very unlikely that you get everything you want unless you have a landlord who's a real sweetheart. It's rare, but it happens. Or, um, you know, you, you otherwise are able to get the advantage at the negotiating table. More likely than not, you're going to have to turn around. You're going to have to see what the concerns the landlord has. And you're going to have to come up with something that works for both sides, really. Now, well, what about if you're on the flip side, though? You're the landlord and your tenant's coming to you to negotiate. Now, Matt, you already said, you know, don't be a bulldog because no judge is going to take your side. But I've seen, I'm really curious to hear from both of you guys about this next thought. I've seen a lot of landlords kind of falling on the sword and saying, I'll apply your security deposit to next month's rent. Personally, I think that's a bad idea because then you have literally nothing in terms of leverage at the end of the day. But I, I, I would love to hear from you guys. <laughs> so I, I certainly can't speak for the long-term triple net leases. That's not my area of expertise, but as somebody that owns a lot of uh, single family and, and mid-sized multifamily, the way we're kind of doing it with our tenants is um, we've expressed to our property managers, hey, let the tenants know that rent is still due. Um, rent will accrue. Um, we want you to pay as much as you possibly can, hopefully all of it, but we also understand that there are going to be extenuating circumstances. Please provide any documentation of those extenuating circumstances. So basically from a psychological standpoint, we're sending the message. Um, we want you to pay and we're going to push you to pay, but we're also reasonable. And, uh, you don't want to send the message that, that this is non-negotiable because at the end of the day, they're either going to pay or they're not going to pay. And all you're going to do if, if you, if you like, if you stand your ground is you're going to piss off your tenant and you're going to hurt the relationship, um, which isn't good for anybody. Um, so that's number one. We're basically setting the expectation. We want you to pay. If you can't pay everything, pay as much as you can. And if you can't pay everything, please provide some documentation on why not. Um, and we do that very nicely. But number two, we use this. We, we like to ask ourselves, so what's, what are the concessions as, as, what are the concessions we can get as landlords? And the big one that we can get, especially for good tenants, for bad tenants, we take a little bit harder stance. But for those tenants that have historically paid on time and we've not had any problems, the big concession that we look for is an opportunity to extend that lease. So we say, look, let's figure out a payment plan. Let's figure out a way to, to either um, uh, push off either a balloon payment later or we push it to the end and we add extra months at the end or whatever. Um, but let's look at this as an opportunity. Your lease is up in four months. Let's, let's extend your lease. Let's extend your lease an extra year right now and negotiate that as part of whatever agreement we have. So that locks in a good tenant when you don't necessarily want to be trying to find tenants in a few months when rents are dropping. Um, it allows you to, to lock in that tenant now at today's market rent for another year. It also allows you to do things. A lot of tenant, a lot of, if, if you buy a building, a lot of times you have a lot of turnover all at once. And so you may have 50% uh, of your leases that are coming due all in the same month. Month. As a landlord, that's always risk. You, you want to spread out your lease renewals over, over the 12 months. Um, and if I buy a new building, if I bought, well, I bought a 38 unit building last year and, and, uh, and basically we kicked everybody out and we got a whole bunch of new tenants in there. And so every lease renews now between August and, and October. Um, because that's when we did that. So now we're taking the good tenants and we're basically saying, Hey, if you're having trouble paying, let's, 
push out your lease. Let's extend your lease now and we'll extend them for two months or six months or 12 months. So now we can not only extend those leases for good tenants, but we can also stagger them better because we're defining the timeline. Um, so figure out what those little concessions are as a landlord that you want or you need. And now's a perfect time because again, the tenants are going to pay or they're not going to pay. Um, but this is your opportunity to get some concessions if they can't. Thank you for that, Jay. I know we're running over time here, so we're going to go ahead and wrap this up one more time. Could uh, Starting with Brandon, Jay, and then Matt, would you just be able to give a quick shout out to where, uh, where everybody can contact you if they wanted to, and then we'll go ahead and close this down. Yep, brandon.hall at hallcpallc.com, or if you are interested in becoming a client, www.therealestatecpa.com. Uh, Jay Scott and I am at jscott.com, um, bigger pockets, business podcast host. And for anybody that's interested in economics and how we should be navigating real estate investing throughout the economic cycle, I actually released a book last year, um, not predicting necessarily a pandemic. Uh, pandemic, but definitely uh, saw that, that we were likely heading towards recession at some point. Um, I wrote a book called Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. So if you're interested in, in economic cycles, the economy and real estate investing, uh, I hope you'll check it out. Fantastic book. Thank you. Matthew Rappaport, Falcon Rappaport and Berkman PLLC, Vice Managing Partner and Chair of the Taxation Department. I do 1031s, QOZs, and tax structuring and planning for the private equity sponsor in the real estate space. Um, if you want to reach me, it's my initials, M-E-R at F-R-B-Law.com. Awesome. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming to the webinar today. I want to thank all of our panelists uh, for taking the time out to be with us. And again, for everybody listening who wants to have this on replay, it will be, re be released this upcoming Tuesday, and that's going to be Tuesday the 21st on the Real Estate CPA podcast at 6 a.m. Eastern. Uh, so thanks again, and we're going to wrap this up. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients, and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.